Recently, I had the privilege of serving the month of January in Redemption Church in Flamborough. Uh, Pastor Jake Tornbleet was on sabbatical, and I did a mini-series then on John the Baptist. We're going to find ourselves in the, uh, in the Gospel of Luke this morning in the middle of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist, in many ways, echoes what we just sang together in Psalm 1. You'll see the same kind of uh, message that John the Baptist brings to the people, that is, the way of sinners leads to death and dust, but the one who is planted in the rivers of God's delight, the one who is abiding in Christ, will produce fruits that are in keeping with repentance. We're going to turn our attention then to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, and our special focus this morning, the text will be verses 7 through 14. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered them saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut up John in prison." When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, 
In you I am well pleased. This is the word of God. And may he add his blessing to it this morning. Beloved in Christ our Lord, in my office at this seminary I have a book on my shelf called How to Survive the Apocalypse. How to Survive the Apocalypse is by one of the professors at Redeemer University and it's a a look at cultures, our current culture's fascination with the end of the world, in particular with Hollywood's obsession with the end of the world. How is it going to end is the question that they are asking. And any number of scenarios have been offered up in movies as possible ends to the world, zombies, plagues, nuclear warfare, asteroid, climate change, you name it, and you can find a movie that speculates how will it all end. It's not surprising. Some of you may remember, you're old enough to remember the time of the Cold War when the threat of nuclear warfare was always present. Perhaps you even experienced in your school children days that life included air raid drills as part of your regular school routine. In our current context too, you can think of any number of collective anxieties that oppress our society and that make us think of death and the possible end of the world. We live in a world, of course, in which death is an inescapable reality. And in fact, the world as we know it is uh, coming to an end. And our culture recognizes it and struggles to, to grapple with it. But there's, of course, a more ultimate and striking reality that is completely ignored and failed to be reckoned with entirely, and that is this. After death comes judgment. And at the end of the world, comes judgment. It is the greatest threat to this world is not a zombie apocalypse, is not the nuclear threat, it's not an inescapable contagion that might descend upon us. These are just symptoms of the deeper problem that is at work in our society. It's been the same since the fall into sin. Scripture makes it very clear what is wrong with the world in which we live. And it's the deadly contagion of sin. It affects all of us. It's the reality that what sin has brought into this world is a separation between God and man, between God and, and the, between man and the God who created him. And the reality that this relationship brings not just temporal death, but eternal death, that after death comes judgment. And so if we think about the most urgent message for the world today, it's not climate change. It has nothing to do with the threat of nuclear warfare again with the rise of Russia It has nothing to do with whatever possible disease might come our way. The greatest threat to the world remains, and the greatest message for the world is that judgment is coming, that there will be a day when Christ returns in the clouds of heaven, and then it will be too late to find refuge. It's the message of the John the Baptist. That striking message that John the Baptist came and preached 2,000 years ago It's the same message that our world, that we so desperately need to hear time and time again. It is this, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Repent for the forgiveness of sins in a world in which there is great uncertainty about death and the end of the world. We need to proclaim and share the gospel that there is forgiveness of sins for those who repent and seek refuge in Christ. This past week I read a story of the Titanic, a preacher on the Titanic who was sharing the gospel with many of the people who were on the Titanic before it sank. 
Then this man who had rejected and rebuffed his efforts throughout that voyage found himself in the water clinging to a piece of debris. And as he was clinging to this piece of debris, this preacher came swimming to him through the waters. He was dying of hypothermia. He had nothing to cling to, and this preacher's sole purpose was to swim from one person to the next, asking them a profound and ultimate question. Are you saved? In his dying moments, his greatest concern was that these people who are perishing under the waves should be confronted one last time with the message of John the Baptist. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Are you saved? Today, again, the message of the gospel comes to us with urgency. The gospel always comes with urgency. It is a matter, each time we sit into the gospel message, it is a matter of life and death, not temporal life and death, but eternal life and death. And so this morning, again, God's word comes to us as, to turn us, again, away from our sins to seek more eagerly the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the message this morning is the message of, the, of John the Baptist, repent. Bear the fruits of a repentant heart. And we'll see John's warning, we'll see the crowd's response, and then we'll see John's uh, good news. I want you to imagine John the Baptist now for a minute, standing by the Jordan River, getting ready to baptize people. Crowds of people have come to join him in this remote spot. The Jordan River is not a place you go to, uh, it's a place you cross if you're going to another place. They come, crowds of people are there, they come to see this strange man. He's a man who eats locusts and wild honey, he's a man who's wearing camel skin clothing, he's a curious fellow, and he preaches passionately, and they've come to, to, to see him, to hear him, they're interested by him. In fact, many of them have come to be baptized by him. They've heard that he brings people to the river and he dunks them under the river, they're baptized of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and they want in on it. They want to see what this preacher has to say, but they also want to be baptized. Well, as the crowds have gathered around the river, John launches into his sermon. And the words he says to them are striking. He says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's quite the opening line for a sermon, isn't it? I wonder how you would have felt and reacted if I had stood up here instead of saying beloved in Christ the Lord this morning I had said to you you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come that's his opening line to these covenant people who've come to be baptized and as I put it that way maybe you're wondering what in the world is John's problem why in the world is he addressing them in this way. These people have come to be baptized, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Where is this coming from? Well, to understand what John is dealing with, we have to read on and see the words that he says immediately thereafter. He says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. John says to them, you need to bear fruits that demonstrate your repentance. You see, his message was, repent of your sins. And these people have heard it. That's the reason they've come. They've come because they hear this preacher is preaching repentance for sins and be baptized. And they like the baptism bit, but they've ignored and they are ignoring the repentance part. And so he's saying to them, listen, your repentance isn't real. 
Your repentance isn't genuine. You haven't come to me at the river here because you're interested in repenting of your sins, because you hate your sins. You're not here because you want to turn away from your sins and turn towards God. You're not here because your hearts have changed in any kind of way. You haven't really repented. After I preached the first sermon in this series in Redemption, then, then Pastor Jake sent me a great little video clip from the great Anglican theologian J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer talked about the importance of repentance, and he used a fantastic analogy to describe what repentance is that might help us understand what was going on in these people's hearts. Packer used a military analogy. He said, repentance is halt, about face, and march. Halt, about face, and march. That is, stop the direction you're going in, turn around, and go the opposite way. When we think of it that way, repentance very clearly and very obviously is something that is tangible, that is noticeable. Repentance is visible. You ought to be able to recognize when somebody repents. When they hate the sin that they are committing, they turn around and they flee from it. But these people who have come to be baptized by John have demonstrated nothing of this repentance. They have not changed direction. They have continued marching in exactly the same direction. They haven't stopped and turned around. What are these people doing? Well, perhaps it's just curiosity. They're interested in this fiery preacher. But perhaps it's also a case of hedging their bets. They've heard this fiery preacher. He's warning them of the wrath to come. He calls them to repent their sins because judgment is coming. They hear him talk about this coming salvation that is in the person of Jesus, this Messiah who is coming with a winnowing fork in his hand and he's going to clear out the threshing floor. They hear him say they need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but none of it, none of it touches their hearts. None of it pricks their conscience. None of them are cut to the quick. There's no conviction of sin in this moment. There's no acknowledgement that we are sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. There is no guilt. There's no repentance. What are they doing in coming to the river? They are hedging their bets. They are buying themselves some fire insurance. Just in case there's something to what this preacher is saying, just in case he's right about what is coming, I'm, I'm going to be baptized. What can it hurt to be baptized by this man? If it means nothing, it means nothing. If judgment is coming, well, then I'll be okay. Can you see now why John is deeply upset with these people? Why he calls them a brood of vipers? He is preaching the glorious gospel message. It's a beautiful message. Did you see the message of John is a beautiful message? He is saying to them, come as you are. He's not saying, uh, shape up your life and I'll baptize you. He's saying, repent. It's hate the direction you're going in and turn around and run to God. And, they, and then you will receive forgiveness of sins. He's saying, come as you are, lay down your burdens, lay down your baggage, get rid of your guilt, put it all down and I will wash you in this water. Receive forgiveness of sins. And the crowd say to them, Listen, we're, we're delighted with that part of your message. We will come as you are, but if it's all the same to you, we'll just stay the way that we are as well. 
In fact, perhaps we're not even sure that we really need to change. We're pretty content with the way that we are. So baptize us just in case, but don't, don't talk to us about change. Don't talk to us about turning around and going in the opposite direction. These crowds have come to be baptized and their hearts are exactly the same as they were when they heard the call to repentance. They need a wake-up call. That's what John is doing. You brood of vipers is there to, to wake them up from their slumber, from their comfortable lives, from their comfortable pews. You see now why John is so strikingly personal and sharp with them. He's concerned about their hearts. John is concerned that they hear the message of the gospel and none of it touches their hearts. He's deeply concerned that they think they're okay, but they are actually marching headlong into coming judgment. The day is going to come, like Jesus' parable, where they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do signs and wonders in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And then Jesus says, get away from me, I never knew you. And so John is concerned that their religion of do's and don'ts and rituals and customs and traditions, it comes not from their hearts, but from their heritage. And so he comes to them, he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Show me that your heart is different. Show me that your heart has changed. Show me that you have turned around and you've run to God. Show me by the way that you live that you'll understand the need for Jesus to make things right between you and God. Show me that you know the need for you to see the salvation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Show me you're sick and tired of your selfishness and pride and unbelief. If you were doing okay on your own, then why would you run to Jesus? If you don't have any need for repentance, then why would you be interested in this Messiah who is coming? That's his message 2,000 years ago. Let me lay this on your hearts this morning. This call to repentance and faith. This call to stop, turn around, and run to the Messiah. Why are you here this morning? Or why have you joined in online? Is it because you know you're a sinner in need of salvation? Has the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus reached your heart? Or is this for you some kind of fire insurance policy? Or simply a heritage, a tradition that you have been brought up in? Are you interested only in the come as you are a bit of the gospel and not the bare fruits in keeping with repentance? These are urgent questions, are they not? Well, when John preaches this message 2,000 years ago, it falls, first of all, on deaf ears. These people hear this strong call, and it falls on deaf ears. We can see that in what John says next. He says, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I imagine what's happening here is that they're shouting back at John as he's preaching. He's saying, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and, and you brood of vipers. And they're yelling back, we're not a brood of vipers, we are children of Abraham. Like you're getting things entirely wrong. Do you realize who you're speaking to? 
We are not a brood of vipers. We're children of Abraham, and he cuts them off at the pass. These people, they figure they have the right, the right ancestry. They've got the right name. They do all the right things. They are circumcised. They offer their offerings of the temple. They keep the festivals. They go to synagogue on the Sabbath day. They, they think they're doing just fine. They're doing all the right things. And John sets them straight and says, you claim to be children of Abraham, but the reality is you are children of snakes. And the snake, of course, is the devil himself. Jesus will actually confront the people of his day as well. They say, you aren't children of Abraham. You are children of your father, the devil. And John is identifying their status as children of snakes by their lack of concern over sin, their lack of the fruits of repentance. He's not pulling any punches here, is he, John the Baptist? In fact, it gets even worse. After saying they're children of snakes and denying this reality that they're children of Abraham, he says, I say to you, this is verse 8, I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And he points to the stones there beside the Jordan River. He's like, if God wants children of Abraham, he can turn these stones into children of Abraham. Don't think that God needs you because you've been born into the right family or belong to the right church. God can take dead things and he can bring them to life. And just think of the example that we see later on in the Gospels, because who are the people who flock to Jesus? It's not the Pharisees. It's not the Sadducees. It's not the teachers of the law. It's not the scribes. Who comes to Jesus? It's the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the Samaritans. All the people that, if you had thrown them into this mix, the crowds would have been separating themselves from those kinds of people. These are the lifeless stones that God is going to bring to life and create children of Abraham. In this moment, the children of Abraham by birth are being cut off and being replaced by the children of Abraham by adoption. Then John ends his sermon, and he doesn't pull any punches again. He ends the sermon, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The call to repentance is serious and sobering. The call to flee from sin, to hate, to stop, turn around, and to run to Jesus is a serious and sobering call. It is a matter of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. If our sorrow over sin is only skin deep, if it just touches the surface, If there's no evidence in our lives either that we've been transformed by our encounter with Christ, then hear John's warning. If you are here this morning and there is nothing in your life that you detest and would love to get rid of, if you have not stopped, turned around, and fled to Christ, The message is clear. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. The axe is at the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Make no mistake, this is not a call for you to 
buckle down and try harder. This is a call for you to recognize that you are a sinner in desperate need of God's grace and God's forgiveness. It's quite the sermon John offers, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking this is quite the sermon. You feel the weight of it. This is a message that demands a response. You cannot ever actually come into this place without responding to the message in some way. And there's only two ways to respond. It is to embrace the good news of salvation in Christ by faith, or it is to reject it. So the tension in this passage is thick. The question we ought to be asking now is, how is the crowd going to respond to this message? John has laid out the gospel message, the good news of salvation, strongly and severely. How is the crowd going to respond? How are we going to respond this morning to the gospel message? Well, we can look at our text with how the crowd responds. Verse 10, so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? I love this part of the story. It's not just a question. This is not just, tell us some more. That's not the response. It looks neat and tidy on the page as Luke writes it, but this is not a neat and tidy question. This is a desperate question. The people who are asking this question are not engaged in some intellectual exercise. They're not saying, John, we need some more information in this moment. They're cut to the quick. They've got tears rolling down their faces, and they are in desperation. John, you have warned us of the coming judgment, and we desperately need to know what must we do to be saved. It's the same question that Luke tells us in Acts. The crowds ask when Peter preaches the gospel at Pentecost. Do you remember that moment in which 3,000 people are saved? The same thing happens. Peter preaches the gospel. He says, you crucified the Lord of glory. And the people are cut to the quick and they ask the same question. They say, what must we do to be saved? What shall we do? That's what happens when the gospel is preached. What shall we do? It happens when the word of God penetrates your heart like the double-edged sword that it is. When you're confronted again with your inability to save yourself. When you're confronted again with the reality that you are a sinner who apart from the grace of God in Christ will face eternal judgment when Christ returns at the end of time. It's the proper response to the message of the gospel. What shall I do to be saved? Do you hear the desperation here in this question. What shall we do then? It's a testimony that God is at work here. See, God is busy in this question. These crowds who have come here in their self-righteousness, in their unwillingness to be changed, in their lack of desire to hear the gospel message, these people were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked. We had dead people come to the river, and in this moment, dead people are being brought to life. God is taking flesh and blood children of Abraham, who were dead though they didn't realize it, and he's turning them into real children of Abraham by faith. God is taking dead sinners and bringing them to life by the power of his word and spirit in this moment. That's the power of the gospel message. That's what's happening here in this moment. Dead people are being raised to life. What shall we do? That's the question. The answer is this, repent. 
and turn to God for the forgiveness of sins? The answer is halt, about face, and march. Don't miss this because John doesn't repeat it here. That's been his message all along. His whole purpose is to pave the way, is to get the people ready for the coming of the Messiah. Turn away from your sins and seek after Jesus Christ. If the Word of God is penetrating your heart this morning and you are asking the desperate question, what shall I do? The answer is this, repent of your sins and seek forgiveness in Christ. Stop, turn around, and run to Jesus. That's been John's message all along, and the crowds have heard it many times, and now he presses it home. He presses it home because the lingering question for this crowd in particular, the lingering question is, well, how do, <clears throat> how do I know that I've truly repented? How do I know that I've stopped and turned around and turned to Christ? Well, it's not as we've seen, come as you are and stay as you are. John's answers to the crowd make that very clear. Repentance and forgiveness, they start in the heart, but they show fruit in a transformed life. And so John fills out his earlier command, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He continues on. They ask the question, what shall we do then? First of all, implicit is turn around and seek forgiveness. But then he also says, verse 11, he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to the one who has none. And he who has food, let them do likewise. And then tax collectors come to him. And notice these three different groups. The crowds come, the tax collectors come, and then the soldiers come. They want to know, what, is a, what does a repentant heart look like? How do I know if my heart has really been transformed? And I'm not just going through the motions. We're going to deal with these questions together first, all, because they all share something alike. And then we're going to look at them um, separately Let's see them together then, and let's see if we can notice the common denominator. Verse 11, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Do you see the common denominator behind them all? They all have to do with love for the neighbor. And in particular, love for the neighbor in connection with their material wealth. They come to the same, him with the same question, what shall we do and how shall we show that we have repented of our sins? And the answer is this in each case, it's stop prioritizing your own needs, stop living for yourself, stop worshiping your wealth, Get rid of the plague of materialism, and above all this, love your neighbor as yourself. So go out and love your neighbor as yourself. If you know Scripture well, that's not a surprising answer to the question, is it? If you just think of the Old Testament constant call to God's people to take care of the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the helpless. The people who are desperately in need of our love and mercy. Think of how many times he reminded the people through the prophets saying, listen, I don't need your sacrifices. Do I eat the, blood, the flesh of bulls and goats? Like, I don't need your empty worship. Show love and compassion and justice and 
mercy and kindness. And that's Jesus' message as well. He comes on the scene and he preaches much the same thing. Do you know the two things that Jesus spoke about most in his earthly ministry? He spoke about money and he spoke about hell and frequently in the same conversation. And John's message falls right in line with Scripture. He says your relationship with your wealth is a barometer, you could say, for the health of your heart. Show me your balance sheet and I will show you how spiritually healthy you are is what John's saying. At home we have a series of books called Hero Tales, which goes through true stories of Christians in the past. As I read John's words and think of this uh, passage, I have to think of one of the stories about John Wesley, who was a great man of God, although his theology was suspect in some areas. And in the early days of John Wesley's ministry, he was an itinerant preacher, he didn't have a congregation to support him. He didn't have a church to preach in. He preached outdoors often. And so he was very poor, and he lived meagerly off of what he received. But at a certain point, he transitioned into settled ministry and received a salary. But throughout that whole period of his ministry, his lifestyle never changed. He needed 28 pounds a year to live off of. So when he received 40, he gave 12 away. And then when they boosted his salary to 50, he gave 22 away. When they boosted his salary to 60, he gave 32 away. You get the picture. John Wesley, in that moment, as we read that story together, his family was inspiring to us. as a really concrete way to love your neighbor as yourself. Say, what does it look like to show that your heart has been changed? Well, it shows a, a completely different relationship between you and the things that you used to prioritize. The reality is my neighbor is my responsibility as someone who's been transformed by Jesus Christ, as the fruit of a repentant heart, I want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus was the one who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he gave that also as a model for us to love as Christ loves. And so we can ask the question, how do we know our heart has changed? How do we know that we are bearing the fruits of repentance? Well, we love like Christ loves. We begin to love like Christ loves. Not perfectly, but we desire more and more as well to love as Christ loves concretely, in real concrete ways. And so that's the common thread in all of John's answers. But he also comes with specifics for each group of people. In particular, we can see that with the tax collectors and the soldiers. Tax collectors, you have to know, in the ancient world were well known for charging more than they were supposed to. The way it worked was uh, the Romans would tax or assess a certain part of the province for a certain amount of money. And the tax collectors would say, okay, we'll collect that for you and get it for you. And that, what they would do was then go and charge far more than they were supposed to. So they could give some to the Romans, and then the rest they were able to keep for themselves. And soldiers were well known for abusing their authority. They'd charge people protection money, even though they were the only ones they needed to be protected from. And so John knows these things about the tax collectors and about the soldiers. He knows the particular temptations that face these people, and, and he points his fingers right at those particular temptations. He's saying, I know the temptation for you, tax collectors. I know they're doing it. Everybody else is doing it, not you. That's what repentance looks like for you. I know all the other soldiers are doing it this way, but not you, because your heart has been transformed. 
That's what Jesus' message was as well to the, uh, to the disciples. He said the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the, and the rulers of the Gentiles call themselves benefactors. That is, they like power and authority and responsibility. Not you. The greatest among you is a servant. John here and Jesus in the same way exposes the heart exactly in that place where it's being tempted to be led away from God. And he says, that's the place where you need to repent. How do you know your heart has changed? How do you know what you experience is true repentance? Well, it's when you hate and flee from the very sin that you have been committing. What would John say to you this morning if you came to him at the river and said, what shall I do? What fruits do you need to bear in keeping with repentance? What area of your life is distracting you from seeking only after Jesus Christ? What kind of sinner are you this morning? I could give you a whole list of examples from my own experience. But better you consider that for yourself this morning and ask the question, what shall I do? How do I bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Let's not let our church pews become too comfortable or let our worship of God be superficial or skin deep. Let the word of God penetrate your heart. Bear the fruits in keeping with repentance. Why? Because the greatest threat to this world is not a nuclear holocaust. It's not a deadly contagion. It's the fact that the, the wrath of God is coming. And the axe is at the root of the trees. The trees that aren't bearing good fruit, that is those who are not abiding in Christ, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the sobering message for us this morning. But it's good news. It is the best news because the reality is it's not too late. If you turn from your sins and you seek Christ, there is forgiveness, abundant forgiveness for any and every sin. If you have sought refuge in Christ Jesus, our Lord, you have nothing to fear from the coming wrath of God against sin. If you have turned around and run to Jesus, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear from the myriad of ways there is to fall, to die in this fallen world, but more importantly, nothing to fear from the coming judgment. You are absolutely and utterly secure in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.